Welcome to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Twardot. Today, we'll be discussing drones, or unmanned aircraft. Drones are becoming common in the Alaska outdoors. We'll have Bill Billmeyer with Corax, Dan Butel with Alaska's Division of Parks and Recreation, and his Shaft with the U.S. Forest Service to guide us through the pros, cons, and regulations of drones. Bill, why don't you start us off with um, a bit about just basically uh, talking about drones, what their capabilities are, and um, what your experience with them is. All right. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, yeah, my, um, like Paul said, my name is Bill Billmeyer. I'm the operations director for uh, Corax LLC, which is a small uh, drone company or a small company that uses drones. Um, out in a, we're based out of our homestead in the Matanuska Valley. Um, so talking about drones and their capabilities, uh, first, I think it's important to delineate that I'll be talking about the hardware capabilities and not the, regula uh, the regulations, because oftentimes what the hardware can do um, is not legal to do. Um, and I'll make that clear here in a minute. So um, as Paul said, it's the unmanned aircraft. Um, I think it's easy to focus on the, the aircraft itself, but really it's a system. So the FAA, the FAA refers to it as the Unmanned Aircraft System, or UAS, and that's the aircraft plus, plus the pilot on the ground and um, at what's called the control station. So the pilot plus the drone equals Unmanned Aircraft System. Um, drones are nothing but a combination of existing technologies that um, all of a sudden became very easy to use and very widely available. Uh, they come in all different types, uh, but basically you can split it into multi-rotor, or and fixed wing and then the kind of a combination of the two which is a vertical takeoff and landing fixed wing aircraft um, but the one you the one generally i see all the time and the one you can go to to you know electronic shop and buy is a it's called a quadcopter and those are the they're either the foldable ones that you see everywhere or the white um, drones and they have four rotors and they can take off and land vertically and they're very easy to fly um, drones are generally controlled either directly by the pilot with a radio controller or they uh, can use an autopilot. So like for instance, for our, our business, we will use uh, an, a laptop and some software to upload these routes to the drone that will then fly automatically. And the pilot's always there to take control if needed, but um, the drone can pretty much take off, fly a flight path and then land automatically. Um, they there is an increasing amount or increasing different types of drones and different companies that are making drones and it's kind of exploding right now. Uh, the uses are just off the charts and all these different industries are finding different ways to utilize drone technology. Um, but the, the ones that are most available right now are consumer drones and they, they vary in cost from about, you know, from pretty cheap to a couple hundred dollars up to about $3,000 is the range that most people will, will put into. Um, drone. Um, the, in terms of the hardware capabilities, they have, um, if you're talking about line of sight and what the pilot is able to control, some of the drones can fly up to four to five to six miles away. If you have good line of sight, you can still maintain control of the drone. And again, that's not uh, legal um, when it comes to regulations, because you always have to keep the drone in sight, but that's something you can do. Um, the ceiling of the drones, like the maximum altitude above sea level can be 20,000 feet or higher. And that's always changing as the technology improves. Um, the battery life is a significant, um, 
has significant variability uh, for the, the quadcopters that are in general use. The battery life is about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, for a fixed wing drone that um, has different, I'm sorry, the fixed wing drones have a longer battery life and they can be up to two to three hours of flight time. Um, and the, the most drones have a significant amount of fail safes built into them as well, where you know if you lose the radio signal, the drone can return to home automatically or it can land automatically or it can just stop and hover. And these are all things that you can program um, before you start your flight. Um, and other fail states that are increasingly available are obstacle avoidance too, where it has sensors all around in four or six directions where if the drone is flying and you're going to fly it into a wall, the drone will sense the wall and stop and either, you know, stop and fly around it or stop and just not fly anymore. That's, that's um, pretty cool. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's when I first started flying, uh, the drone, I crashed about three or four drones right in a row. Um, flying into trees and flying into ice climbs and flying into uh, several walls actually um, but that gets harder to do which is great because you know the they're relatively inexpensive but it's not an easy cost to absorb um, if you crash a bunch in a row how i got into it um, i guess was um, i have a background in film and television and so the early adopters for drones um, was film and television for obvious reasons. They used to require for these beautiful aerial shots that are everywhere nowadays, they used to require a helicopter plus a million dollar camera mounted to the helicopter. Um, and now you can buy a $1,500 drone and fly it around and you get a video that's of equal quality. And it doesn't, you know, you don't risk a $2 million um, package plus people flying around in the air. So the, the risk involved is significantly lower and the quality of the imagery is pretty much equal. Um, okay, that's great, Bill. Um, what about um, some of their uses? Like, what are you using them for? What are other people using them for? Uh, the use is, is kind of exploding right now. Um, it's a combination of the drone, the aircraft capabilities, but also uh, the sensors. So a lot of people view the, the aircraft as a platform for these various types of sensors. So um, as the drone use becomes a lot more available or a lot more ubiquitous, uh, the, the the hardware that can be attached to the drone gets miniaturized and uh, gets a lot more effective. And so, um, for instance, where it started out, generally the early adopters, like I said, was media, um, film and television uh, with their high resolution cameras and video. Um, that's certainly everywhere these days, um, but also other industries like surveying and mapping. <clears throat> using uh, your drone to collect overlapping imagery to be used in photogrammetry software can make these very accurate uh, and high resolution maps um, that surveyors use to kind of supplement their skill set and make uh, and also mapping is used by all different industries um, and kind of just the understanding of the capabilities of the drones is is uh, is catching up with the hardware so i think yeah, um, for firefighting, for instance, they have these small thermal cameras that come attached to the drone. So firefighters will use, they'll just send the drone up and pan around and look at the environment and see if there's small spot fires everywhere. And they also use them just for general situational awareness. So you can target your crews to where the small fires are starting and before the large fires start. Uh, search and rescue also uses just general with general video capability and photography capability, but also thermal cameras. So they've found hypothermic people who have 
been missed by ground crews because they crawled into a tree well and curled up. Um, and it's very hard to find people like that in, in certain environments, oh. of course. But yeah. with a thermal camera, they're able to see this person and then send teams and then save them. And um, kind of these case studies keep coming back week after week as more people use drones. Um, that's really that's really pretty disaster uh, cool. response. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's certainly experiments going on. Yeah, it's just it's it's a force multiplier, so to speak, where these small teams all of a sudden can visualize these huge areas just searching for people. And then uh, different sensors make all these capabilities possible that wasn't really possible or they were possible. But you had to have a manned aircraft up in the air with this very expensive equipment and flying actually up in the air, which in involves increased risk. Um, and I know another big driver of the technology right now is the package delivery companies the FedEx, UPS, and Amazon are trying to close the order to delivery loop. And so certain areas, they're working on the unmanned traffic management system that will allow them to send a drone with your package that you just ordered sometimes minutes ago, and it'll fly and land in your yard and deliver the package. What do you mean by unmanned tracking? Or you just mentioned something about with Amazon. Uh, was it unmanned tracking system? What's that? Oh, the unmanned traffic management system. Oh, it, it, it's a way to, because the drones, drones share the airspace with all other aircraft. It's the national airspace. And the trick is trying to figure out how to do it safely. Um, and I, we talked, we touched briefly on regulations, but regulations are how, you know, um, how I can send my aircraft up and mix around with all the other aircraft and not crash and do it reliably. And to do that, it's just, you need real-time tracking. Your drone needs to be able to sense and avoid other aircraft, um, sometimes autonomously, which it's, they're still working on the technology and it's, it's a long regulatory process because they want to make sure it's reproducible and reliable. Um, and so that's before you can have the package delivery where the drone flies out of the direct um, line of sight of the operator. Um, you need to have a reliable system in place that'll make that, you know, an actual solution that won't result in crashes, which has happened and it will continue to happen, unfortunately. Crashes of what? Of drones or other things? <laughs> Planes. <laughs> that's what I worry well, about. Well, yeah. I mean, well, it's certainly. Well, it's well, the people have crashed, um, you know, they see a, a, a plea. I'm just thinking of a random case study I read in my email. Um, they'll see a drone. Uh, people will be on the ground and they have a drone with them and they see a police helicopter hovering over a house or something. And then they'll send their drone up trying to get video of that police helicopter and inadvertently fly their drone into the police helicopter, oh boy. Um, which, of course, can involve potentially involve bringing down the helicopter and, and yeah and causing risk to life and limb of the, the manned aircraft pilots um, and that's what the FAA has, has done a lot to create the regulatory environment that makes that kind of thing it's clear that that's not okay and then it makes it clear who's at fault when that kind of thing happens um, and so that it's it takes it's going to take a long time to figure out but it, it will happen and uh, it'll make it it'll make the drones even more ubiquitous everywhere once that gets figured out. That's great. Uh, this is um, Paul. Um, this is Outdoor Explorer uh, um, on Alaska Public Media. We're talking about drones today in the outdoors. Bill and we have Bill Billmeyer with us. Bill, can you how hard are these things to fly? You said you crashed a couple when you started. How how difficult? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, they are actually pretty easy to fly if you do it responsibly. And kind of my learning curve was, um, I was kind of just enjoyed the actual experience of flying, but um, I, I didn't really understand the hardware. So it didn't stop as like if I would fly close to a tree, it wouldn't stop as quickly as I thought and it would fly into the tree. Um, but really most of the, the quadcopters, the consumer drones out there are GPS stabilized, which means if they're flying and you just take your hands off the controls, they will stop and hover in place very accurately and just hang out there. So, and uh, they do have significant fail safes in place, like I mentioned earlier. Um, so they're really pretty easy to fly if you're not trying to fly fast or close to things. Um, and it gets easier and easier. The The other types of drones, like the fixed wings I referenced, are, are much more different. It's just like an airplane. So you can't just lay your hands off the controls and they stop and hover. They'll keep going. Um, but most people don't fly those. They, they, um, they're more expensive and they're kind of a more uh, niche uh, type aircraft. That's great. Um... Uh, I was going to go on and uh, start talking about some regulations um, with, uh, uh, for the listeners, bills in the remote setting. So a little bit of a satellite delay. So um, sorry about that. Uh, let's go on to um, some regulations a little bit. Um, uh, 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 Dan Butel's with the um, State uh, Division of Natural Resources. Uh, Dan, why don't you uh, tell us what you do and talk about a little bit about uh, regulations on uh, state lands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm in the Division of Parks and Outdoor Recreation. As I as said, my name is Dan Butel. I'm a natural resource specialist. Uh, and so work for Division of Parks and Outdoor Recreation within the Department of Natural Resources. I am uh, dealing with a number of issues for state parks, uh, including work on regulations or possible regulations. Uh, so we know there's been increased interest in drones and flying in, in the state parks. And we, uh, as of right now, we don't have specific regulations about them. They are effectively treated as aircraft as a result, which means that uh, rules that say you can or can't land aircraft in particular areas apply, uh, which obviously they're not the same as other aircraft and we can recognize that. So we are definitely interested in figuring out what the right answer is and how to best regulate them going forward. Uh, so to that end, we did look at, did some uh, public scoping, gave the public opportunities to comment uh, about a year ago in March and April of 2020. I uh, got a few comments on, on that topic and we're considering how best to draft regulations to go forward. Um, one thing we're, we're keeping in mind and we're mindful of is that we are a land manager and we uh, manage the state park lands and, uh, and that uh, means that we can restrict or, or allow uh, landings and takeoffs from our state parks, but we don't have authority over the airspace. That still remains subject to FAA regulation. And so we, you will no doubt even if we did have regulations allowing or prohibiting drones in any particular area, it may in fact still be possible to fly a drone over that area if there's a legal place to take off somewhere else from private property, from uh, some other landowner. So uh, just something to keep in mind as we're regulating is that we're, or, or talking about possible regulations that the state could have, we, we are limited and, and do have to defer to the FAA on the airspace aspect. So you're, uh, so, 
No, go ahead. So my understanding is summarize that you're at least on um, most state lands that you're you're just regulating where people can launch and land from, and then the airspace is with FAA. Correct. Yep. Correct. And so on uh, outside of state parks, on general state lands, state public domain lands, you can generally land and take off uh, with regular aircraft too. And as long as you're not doing anything that violates FAA rules, um, you can fly a drone there as well. Uh, in state parks, where the regulations are more written as things aren't activities, vehicles especially aren't allowed unless they are expressly permitted, the uh, drones having not been anticipated at the time these regulations were largely written 10 to 40 years ago, uh, are not authorized because they weren't a thing that existed in any practical sense when the regulations existed or were written. So we need to think about what does that mean and how can we allow them in a responsible manner that's not going to uh, harm other uses um, or, or harm any of the parks that we're supposed to be protecting. So we have been thinking about that and, and trying to figure out what the next steps are. Um, we're trying to not step on the FAA's toes and, and to focus some of the regulation aspect on, you know, you need to have your follow the FAA rules, have the FAA uh, required registration of the drone with you. If you're flying commercially, you do need to have a um, pilot certificate from the FAA under part 107, they call it. And things like that, that, that the FAA is already taking care of for us and for other uh, land managers, landowners, you can just say, great, FAA, follow the FAA rules, and that'll cover a lot of things. Um, but then how do we also cover other things that might be specific? Um, there might be areas where there's a lot of use, a lot of users, and it's just uh, some users, some park visitors don't want to see somebody else flying over them right over their heads, and that's understandable. So maybe to some extent you wanna limit the use in the most densely populated areas or popular areas. Um, on the other hand, some people will say, hey, I go back in the, in the wilderness in the really remote backcountry areas to get away from it all and I, I don't wanna see somebody flying back there either. So, so we definitely have to, to find a, a middle ground where we can allow some, at least some flying, I think, but we're not quite sure what that answer is yet. Um, we know that there's a lot of interest out there though, and, and we want to make sure we find the right way to accommodate that. Yeah. I remember once being uh, we, up at, I remember once being up at Glen Alps and and, and, and outside of Anchorage and uh, early on and drones and uh, I was uh, drones had just come on the scene and there was uh, kids, you know, following each other on their skateboards with a drone down, you know, from that little overlook, the painted overlook. <laughs> and I was like, aha, this is gonna be interesting for the land managers. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So we definitely do hear from people, uh, both people grumbling about someone else having a drone out and flying it either in or near one of the state parks, or we hear from the people who want to be able to legally fly their drones. So right now we do issue some permits for drone flying. Uh, I've, I do commercial permits that for filming uh, we've issued a number of them around the state that included drone use as well, uh, where they want to use the drone to establish some scenery and backgrounds uh, for their film or to 
their film project, their TV project, their uh, a few like advertising photo shoot types things where they want to just have a panorama or a really nice background photo that they can use. And then they also do some filming on the ground. So we sometimes include that in, in filming. Uh, there's, there's some, some of the parks in some of the areas do allow filming. Uh, Chugach State Park close to Anchorage, the way those regulations are written really does not without express authorization, without a permit. So that's uh, an issue for us. You know, one other topic that I wanted to maybe mention as, as things that we talked about with regulations is uses of, of drones. There's a few things that we think about that have been either prohibited or, or we wanna try and make sure we're not enabling if we do authorize drone use in parks is wildlife interactions. So we don't wanna see people flying in a way that uh, causes wildlife to change their behavior, that spooks them, that causes them to waste energy running around or, or otherwise harasses wildlife. And we also, uh, so, so that's definitely an issue anywhere you have wildlife and obviously the attraction of getting a great shot of the animals is there. So we're, we, we need to figure out how to, to balance that and to protect the animals that are supposed to be part of the parks. The other is hunters specifically are prohibited from flying mm -hmm. drones and using drones to locate animals uh, under fish and game regulations. And so we wanna make sure we're not inadvertently uh, under undermining those, those rules that uh, the wildlife troopers and fishing game work hard to implement to avoid giving hunters an unfair advantage stalking game or trying to locate game. It reminds me of the leave no trace principles that uh, people are uh, familiar with them and we'll have links to the FAA regulations and LNT principles and other resources on the Outdoor Explorer website but you know two of those principles are respect other people um, and their experiences and also respect and, and avoid wildlife. So those principles, they're, they're old, they've been around for a long, long time, but they even apply this new technology. Uh, Heath, why don't we go to you? This is Heath Schaff with the um, US Forest Service. And Heath, why don't you talk about uh, regulations and uses on Forest Service land? Yeah, thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity to, to weigh in here a little bit. And I'll, I'll echo quite a few things that uh, Dan just spoke of. Uh, first, I'll just address uh, where to fly. Obviously, individuals and organizations, they can fly their UAS uh, or drones, as we put it in this case, as long as they follow the FAA guidelines that they can find online, uh, FAA.gov. Um, we also ask that uh, they be flown before below 400 feet, and I'll kind of explain why, because I guess it helps to make more sense of, of why some of these regulations are in place. Um, FAA requires VFR aircraft in a non-congested area to remain 500 feet or above uh, the highest obstacle in a non-congested area. So by uh, bringing our drones down to 400 feet or below, that gives us a 100 foot of buffer there just to, to ensure that we have a little bit of safety margin in there if someone is flying their drone and then uh, the rest of the traffic should be above that if it's an in-route VFR type aircraft. So um, that, that's the, the understanding behind that, which is kind of um, dovetailed off what the FAA is putting standards for a uh, VFR or visual flight rule. So, so, um, so, so to clarify that, it's, it's the, the a regular aircraft has to be above 500 feet with VFR. So just to clarify that. And so you're saying correct. 400 feet 
no more, no higher than 400 feet for drones. There's a hundred foot buffer in there. Perfect. Got it. Yeah, there's at least a hundred foot buffer in that case, and then then um, non-congested areas, which would be out, you know, away from major um, cities or whatnot, um, it'd be or it'd be a thousand feet. So um, that gives us even more buffer. But again, that's where we come back to the 400 feet. So. Um, and then also TFRs. TFRs are temporary flight restrictions that are enacted by the FAA, and those are publicized via NOTAMs, and pilots can look these things up. Um, you can also find the TFRs uh, located at tfr.fa.gov, and it will give you a location for that temporary flight restriction. And many reasons that there might be a TFR in, in, in effect, and that could be uh, very well a fire. It could be an accident scene. It could be dignity. Um, flying in and out, which once that TFR is set in place, um, everybody that is in that area needs to be aware of that and remain um, clear of it. Launching a drone in the middle of a, a TFR could, could be a problematic situation for everyone involved, especially if there's a fire operation. Um, so you want to make sure that you, you take a look at those TFRs before you fly. Um, and then, uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about protecting the wildlife like Dan spoke of. And uh, we're just asking that nobody fly their drones over uh, congressionally designated um, wilderness areas or primitive areas, because um, those are where people go to seek some solitude, obviously. And we, we talked about that earlier, just good manners. Um, and we don't want to disturb those folks. And then we asked that they uh, don't fly over near wildlife, anything that can create stress or cause significant harm or death. I mean, some animals, they can be spooked by by a drone and uh, take off in flight and then injure themselves. So obviously uh, we wanna avoid that at all costs. And any intention to disturb animals, breeding, nesting grounds, uh, rearing of young, anything like that, uh, we just ask that the users remain clear of that and respect the wildlife and, and allow them the opportunity to uh, um, not be buzzed by a drone coming overhead at hundred feet. So, um, and then again, follow the state and wildlife fish uh, agency regulations for UASs or drone um, operation to detect wildlife. And uh, then we ask that they launch a UAS no more than uh, 100 meters or 328 feet from wildlife. So we want to kind of keep a buffer between, you know, wildlife that somebody may be trying to get a shot of, uh, remaining outside that buffer zone um, before you launch the aircraft. Again, just not to kind of spook the, uh, the, the uh, animals in the area. Um, and then staying in control of the drone. This is a, this is a big one, and I'll kind of uh, dig a little bit deeper into that. But obviously, you've got to maintain a visual sight with your drone at all times. That's not just a Forest Service regulation. Um, as Bill has stated earlier, that's an FAA regulation. And again, that goes back to the FAA's requirement for VFR, visual flight rules. And that is predicated on the basis that an aircraft pilot can maintain visual separation from other aircraft by using his, in essence, his eyeballs out of the cockpit. So um, now the UAS or the drone operator is the pilot standing on the ground and he needs to make sure he can maintain visual of that drone um, so he can separate it from other aircraft, other drones or other obstacles that he may see in the area. Um, then of course we encourage people to take lessons. <laughs> Drones can be a little tricky to fly. And if it's your first time going out and flying a drone inside the one of the park areas or uh, the national forest, we would just request that uh, you, know, you, you kind of understand how to operate your aircraft safely. And then the big one, um, you, you got to remain uh, five miles outside of an airport. And that's for obvious reason. Aircraft begin their descent in the airports. And if you're operating a drone in the way um, that can uh, impede the traffic flow in and out of the airport, that's a safety concern. So 
Um, just some of the main topic areas, most of this information would be found on the, the Forest Service USDA.gov, know before you go, and uh, we encourage you to take a look at that before you go out and operate your drone. Great, thank you. Uh, we'll take a quick break and be back um, in, a, uh, in a second with more on drones. Stay tuned. This is Paul Torlek with Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. Welcome back to Outdoor Explorer. We're talking about drones or unmanned aircraft. Uh, and the show, the use of them exploring. Uh, Heath, why don't we come back to you a little bit and talk to us a little bit more about your experiences um, and um, yeah, talk to us about what you've seen with drones. Okay, a um, little of my background, I, I spent 25 years in the Marine Corps and, and did air traffic control and command and control. So I've got experience with some of the, the larger UAS platforms, fixed wing that we used. And we, we struggled in the beginning with integrating those into our airspace plan as far as using them. And, and a lot of these things were done by uh, routing out uh, the aircraft and, and then also separation of time. Um, but then try to translate that over to the national airspace system here in the U.S. It's much more difficult. And, you know, these are some of the, the challenges that we run into when we when we do see drone usage um, increase around the country. Um, the Forest Service, one of the big big things that uh, we do, not so much here in Alaska, but it is it can happen. And it does happen in lower 48 is fires. And then we have a lot of aircraft that come from all over and uh, basically um, congregating in a, in a close proximity with those aircraft trying to fight these wildfires. And then we run into the problem that, you know, somebody gets interested and they want to launch a drone inside that airspace, which we probably have enacted a TFR around the temporary flight restriction. Um, as soon as that drone goes up in the air, that airspace is, uh, is no longer safe. And we may have to clear that airspace until we can locate, locate that drone operator and ask them to land that aircraft. Uh, for the safety of everybody involved, including our pilots. Um, and I know a lot of people's mindset, well, surely the pilot will see my drone and go around it. And I just ask to consider that they're under a high stress, uh, intense environment where they're concentrated in front of them at the fire. They're, they're, they're dealing with lifting sh uh, load weights inside the aircraft as far as the water is concerned. So a lot of things going on in a cockpit. They may not see your drone. And, and that's why that we ask that you just remain clear of those areas completely. Um, just for the safety, because that does create some uh, some serious challenges. So um, there's there's a lot of things to concern be concerned about in, in drone usage, and especially in uh, emergency situations such as uh, fires in the Forest Service or, or throughout the country. It's amazing to how on the ground you'll see an aircraft, and it's so obvious the aircraft is there, but in an aircraft looking for other aircraft or even things on the ground, it's very difficult to see even a large uh, other aircraft. Um, so I can imagine it's almost impossible to see a drone. Yeah, drones are almost impossible to see airborne, especially these small ones. Uh, they're, they're really, there's just no way to see them unless you almost hit one, unfortunately. And that's usually when you find out that there's a drone in the area. So yeah, it's difficult to say the least. Great. Dan? 
I want to come back to you for a minute. And uh, you said uh, that you had some uh, regulations pending or something like that that people can learn about mm -hmm. and um, comment on. Yeah, we do not have draft regulations that are public or, or even really particularly close to, to being finalized okay. yet. But we have this process that we're required to follow to adopt regulations. And there are opportunities to, to comment during that for the public. Uh, so one of those was public scoping, which we did last spring. And we are before a regulation is finalized and adopted, there'll be a second round of chances for the public to comment. Um, you can subscribe uh, for public notices if you go to notice.alaska.gov. Uh, you can also send us an email, dpor.regulations at alaska.gov. That's dpor.regulations, R-E-G-U-L-A-T-I-O-N-S dot com or at alaska.gov sorry and uh and we'll um add you to the list and I'll, I'll send you a copy of the public notice if we do one if somebody has a, a specific suggestion for things that's also a good uh way to get in touch dpor.regulations and, and we'll get the, and we'll get those email addresses up on our website outdoor store website Great. also yep yep so yeah we we We'd love to hear from people. We've heard from a few on specific, you know, on the regulations specifically. We've heard other people just sort of generally commenting that they'd like to see this, but I don't have a, a, an exact proposal for them to comment on, but, but you can certainly weigh in at any time. And uh, if we do have a proposed regulation, that'll go out to the public and they'll have a chance to comment on. In my experience with these emerging technologies, now's the time to get involved. If people are interested, it's a great time to be involved in, you know, because 20 years from now, 30 years from now, the, the people look back and go, oh, those, those regulations were being formed, you know, now uh, as, as this use starts to explode. So uh, super helpful for people who are interested to get involved. Let's go to a different examples or uh, some stories about what you all have seen. And I really want to focus on sort of the issues involved with drones, but also the benefits of drones. So Bill, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that um, we've talked about firefighting, we've talked about some other stuff, but why don't we talk about some of the other uses that um, your company is using them for and um, what are some of the benefits and maybe some of the issues that you're seeing with them? Okay, yeah, no, thanks. Uh, I'll talk about the benefits because um, that's really what attracted us to starting the our company. Um, what I see is we view drones as a means to an end. Um, it's a way to gather and uh, produce this high quality data that used to be unavailable to anybody with anybody without a large budget. Um, so for instance, um, in agriculture and small communities and small companies, um, if you wanted really high resolution imagery, you would have to get satellite imagery or really pay a pretty high dollar to have a manned aircraft come and fly over your area of interest. Um, but, and the problem was is these, speaking to small communities, uh, especially in Alaska, is they would have these large corporations come into their area and map or survey their, their um, town or their community or the areas around their community for various purposes and then they would leave and then seem to forget to make that data available to the community itself. 
Um, whereas now you can buy a $1,500 drone and download some software, some of which is freely available, um, and produce this same quality data on your own internally. And so it, you know, data is power these days and good data um, it offers huge advantages across the board in a lot of ways that aren't obvious. Um, and so the one thing we're pretty interested in is working with communities and farms and small companies to understand how they can utilize and create that data on, on their own. Um, and for instance, like uh, we work with exploration companies that now have a, a, a way to document their environmental re remediation efforts in very high resolution, um, which kind of leads to a better consensus by all sides. Sometimes it's hard for um, for opposing or different groups to work together on things they might not agree on, um, but at least they can agree that the area that was disturbed for a drill pad or something like that has been, um, you know, broken down and uh, replanted and stuff like that. And that's been very useful. Um, and also we're pretty excited about the uses in agriculture for precision agriculture, just a way to um, get a high resolution imagery of your fields or um, farmers can get a really grain granular understanding of how their crops are performing. You can do photogrammetry mapping until crop height over time. You can do repeat imagery, you know, once a day, once a week, once a month. Um, that wasn't really available in the other, um, either satellite or manned aircraft because it was too expensive. Um, and now it's, you know, the data is very easy to create and that just creates all these huge advantages. Um, I guess, uh, the issues I see, um, especially around our area of the Matanuska Valley, is we live near the Matanuska Glacier. And so everybody wants to fly a drone onto the Matanuska Glacier, but some people might not want to um, pay the fee to go up to the parking lot to get there. So people will park on the road and fly the drone straight over an active airport and take pictures of the drone flying, flying over people's private property and also creating the potential for uh, collisions with manned aircraft. Um, and people don't seem to be aware of the, the regulations that are required to do that safely. And so, um, you know, if I, we see drones fly overhead quite a bit and the neighbors don't always appreciate that. Um, but also it's, it's understanding the airspace is a, a major thing. Like you talked about flying drones in Anchorage, um, that is uh, in a large part regulated airspace and controlled airspace for good reason, because there is a ton, it's an international airport, there's a ton of traffic there. So sometimes you can fly the hardware, but you're flying it illegally according to the regulations. And what it's they've done is block up the airspace into little little grids. So depending depending on exactly where you are, the um, the aviation maps will tell you that in that area you can fly up to 100 feet and no higher. And so if you do fly higher, and they and they have those heights and regulations for good reason because again there's a lot of manned aircraft. So if you fly over 100 feet in that area, you might be in the active flight path and there's, you know, a plane coming by every 20 minutes and you just increase the chances of, uh, you know, uh, striking that aircraft and creating a very dangerous situation. Um, so the benefits, uh, I think it's very easy to educate yourself and the FAA has a lot of um, good information online. As Heath mentioned, their website, they do a very good job for public outreach, um, but I don't think people understand quite yet that that is something that is required. And I'm sure that misuse, um, you know, creates uh, a sort of ill will toward drones and doesn't help your business and what the people are doing it properly are trying to do. 
Yes, and I, I've kind of anticipated, I've had one bad interaction, and honestly, it was because I wasn't, I didn't do my research about private property, and I kind of created a little ill will, but I'm always very sensitive to that, um, but mostly, if, if I put the time in and just let people know what I'm doing and why I'm there, and are very conscious about their privacy, then people are excited to see the drones, like, I've had probably a two dozen people just make the comment like, oh, I'll shoot your drone out of the sky, kind of as a joke, um, which I understand is a realistic concern in some areas. Um, and my reply is always, well, it's a, it's a registered commercial aircraft and that's a federal crime. So you might want to not do that. Um, but generally it's, <laughs> it's if people get the impression that I'm kind of steamrolling them and doing it in, in despite of their wishes and not in respect of their privacy, then of course, they're going to get angry, but I, I find that to be the exception versus the rule. Generally, people are and learn about the drones. So it doesn't take much effort to kind of head that off before it becomes a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I've been irritated by them a few times myself. I thought about the gun thing. Uh, so... Yeah. Uh, this is Outdoor Explorer. I'm Paul Turlock, your host. Uh, we're on Alaska Public Media and talking about uh, drones or unmanned aircraft systems or unmanned aircraft. I have uh, Bill Billmeyer with me, uh, Dan Butel, and his chef. Um, let's uh, continue with um, Heath and Dan. Uh, Wanda, Dan, um, why don't you talk about some of the uses and some of the stuff that your uh, colleagues are doing in DNR with dr drones? Yeah, absolutely. So we've seen a number of parts of DNR get interested in, in using drones professionally. Uh, so I have some of the surveyors are, have bought a very high quality drone that can enable them to get really high resolution imagery, but also to build digital elevation models or digital terrain models or different types of basically a very precise measurement of how what the elevation is. It's a super high resolution topographic contour map effectively. And that's a thing that you can then turn around and hand to engineers who are working on a project at a site or just to somebody who wants to do some cartography work, some mapping, and you can build a very nice map out of that. You can build a uh, good model of the ground that can then be used for evaluating all sorts of natural resources possibilities. You can give it to the engineer as they're designing and building any sort of project on the site, any, anything that's gonna be constructed that needs to know about the topography. Uh, this can be super valuable from the design phase onward, from the initial design phase onward. Uh, I have other folks who have worked at, who have looked at things like they can use it for site inspection. So when they have uh, leases or permits in remote areas and it's difficult to bushwhack around checking every square inch of a site, they can tell what's going on much more quickly you know, from a main trail or even from a road just by getting the drone up in the air for 10 minutes then they'd, that they'd spend two hours looking through the woods or maybe they can just use the drone to find the spot that they want to go look at on the ground. Uh, so there's there's some of the, some possibilities for that. Uh, you can use it to get nice photos, uh, just uh, obviously, but you can do so much more in terms of inspecting things. Anything that ties into knowing what's really going on on the ground, it can be can be very valuable for all that sort of stuff. I imagine that's pretty useful for trail building. 
if you're going to build a trail, which there seems to be a lot of trail building, we've got a show coming up on trail building here soon, that they could use that instead of trying to muddle your way through the bushes, you could use a drone to route, uh, uh, plot the route out. Yeah, absolutely. It can help you avoid getting lost in the alders and uh, see yeah. what what your alignment is that actually works and and figure it out and try and identify things like where are there where are there poor soils like there are soils that are just going to be much worse and and not sustainable to build on for a trail or anything else and if you can see that there's a patch of those of the soils or the plants that indicate those types of soils and instead there appears to be a much more promising piece of ground uh, nearby or not too far away maybe it makes sense to extend the route further but avoid the problematic area uh, poor drainage, poor soils, something like that. And so, yeah, it can, it can absolutely free you up from being stuck in the bushes and not able to see where, where you're going and, and uh, I think save a lot of time and hopefully get you a better route. Uh, Heath, what do you have to add, add to this conversation about, you know, the benefits or issues with drones? <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll kind of just weigh in a little bit about the, some of the issues that, I, that I've already spoke about, but I'll be quick on it. But obviously, maintaining separation from an unmanned aircraft from manned aircraft is going to be the number one challenge across the board um, for everybody when these platforms are, are used more inside the airspace. So um, FAA is taking some uh, roles in, in trying to mitigate that. They do have a next-gen air traffic control system, which is putting more sensors on aircraft and making it uh, where pilots can see other aircraft uh, via stuff inside the cockpit. So I think as that progresses along with the drones being integrated in the national airspace, we'll just increase the safety factor as it goes forward. But um, challenges, but I think they, they'll be overcome. Um, some of the benefits are just phenomenal. The Forest Service uses drones now for um, all kinds of things. Aerial ignition of fires, instead of, you know, sending uh, folks in to, to drop fire lines and, you know, do some burns, um, controlled burns to hold a fire back, they can do that with a drone. They can, they can fly a drone in there, drop the, the ignition balls, and basically get that fire going, and that, that reduces the risk to the forest personnel. So great advantages. Also, in our, in our resource-type uh, flying, there's a lot of health resources where we send out uh, um, researchers, and they took a look at the health of the forest, the beetle counts, you know, all the things that we've heard about before. Um, if we can do that with drones more in the future, we're mitigating a lot of risk um, by somebody being in the air in an aircraft circling over area. If you can do that with a, a drone, obviously, that's, that's a, a wonderful asset and a tool. But the other great aspect of it is uh, it's green. I mean, you think about no longer do you have something burning fuel for a couple hours in the in the air above a forest. You can send a drone over to do the same, same thing that's running off electricity, and that keeps boots off the ground. So you're not disturbing some of the natural resources by trying to get some of the researchers into these remote areas. Um, you can put a drone over the top of that and collect that information and that data without bothering anything. Um, so I think that's a phenomenal tool that uh, as we grow inside the drone world a little bit and we mitigate some of these risks, um, I think we'll find out that there's a lot of value in drones. I mean, Amazon and, and Google and some of these other folks have figured it out that that's the way of the future and they're dumping, you know, millions upon millions of dollars into, into making this work um, so they can deliver packages. And uh, I think it's definitely something that we can uh, use more inside the uh, Forest Service and some of the government services. Heck, government's been using drones for years now, as everybody knows from watching TV. 
and uh, it's been quite successful and it's reduced a lot of risk to the troops uh, being able to use long distance drones especially so I think as we move forward, we're going to see some exciting stuff in it. Uh, I think we're at that point where, you know, might date myself if we're choosing VHS or beta, it, you're going to kind of have to pay attention to where this thing goes and, and figure out, uh, you know, what niche you want to be in as we progress in this. So a lot of good benefits. That's a great segue to sense. Um, what's our, where are we going with this? This is, um, okay, this is Outdoor Explorer. This is Paul Tordakum. We're talking about drones on Alaska Public Media. Where are we, what do you, the three of you think about issues um, is it going to the future? Like for instance, I think about one thing that I get hear a lot about it is the noise, the drone, right? The drone of the, 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 the aircraft, it bothers people. Uh, where's this technology going? Uh, where do you see um, some of the issues and other uses that might be coming, and and let's talk about recreationally in particular. Um, uh, like for instance, I know friends that are actually scouting routes uh, using drones. Um, Bill talked about search and rescue. Um, we also, I think about well, is it you know avalanche mitigation, for instance? Um, what are some of the other? Uh, where are we going with this technology? Do you think, Bill? You want to start? Uh, yeah, I think the, the regulations and, as Heath mentioned, um, the increased sensors on the aircraft, on all aircraft that allow the aircraft to all have awareness of where the other aircraft in the airspace are, is going to allow beyond visual line of sight um, flying. And there's a lot of interest in that because having a small drone that you have to keep in sight is pretty limiting. So I need to be on the ground and... Um, with the drones that we fly, I can only see it about 650 meters horizontally maximum, um, which means I still have to be on the ground uh, moving around quite a bit. So if I map a 12 square miles, I'm changing locations where I'm launching from about 30 or 40 times. Um, but if I could do that reliably and safely where I can launch from one spot and then fly the drone over the whole area and then have it come back to me, that's just going to make my job quite a bit easier. Um, and so I would like the, I think the regulations, once they catch up in the next gen airspace, um, it catches up, that's just going to free up and make things so much more easy, um, exponentially easier, um, and just allow data collection across the board to happen. And that'll permit like the, like we mentioned, the package delivery and other niche uses that people are coming up with, like um, flying an AED out to uh, a nine, somebody does a 911 call with a, somebody has a heart attack. You can, people are researching how to launch a drone with an AED that'll land right at that site and give them access to this life-saving technology. Um, so I think things like that, um, once the capability increases, people will understand and kind of start thinking about what that will allow them to do that isn't apparent right now because it's just not possible. This might be more of an FAA question, but I'm sort of curious with with manned aircraft. If I see someone, let's say, uh, violating airspace, um, I got a tail number. To, there's some accountability there. Is there any accountability with drones? I, I, what triggered me, Bill, is you talking about being able to fly outside of your your visual range. Like what's gonna? How are we gonna account for people um, yeah. with that? Any ideas? Well. Well, what's coming right now um, in there in the working through the regulation is the remote ID rule. So pretty soon you'll be able to point some kind of device at a drone in the sky and it'll tell you whose drone that is because the drones have to be registered. If you're above a certain size, like 250 grams, I think it has to be registered with the FAA. 
Um, so somebody will be able to tell not only whose drone that is, but where you are physically located as well. And that's just going to force accountability, which is kind of lacking right now. Um, you know, right now, if you crash your drone, of course, you can't see the, the registration number on the drone. But if you crash the drone, then you can pick through the pieces and find that information. And the FAA does have a hotline you can call to report that activity. Um, but it's just their enforcement capabilities are pretty low compared to the capabilities right now. But that's going to go away relatively soon in the next few years as the remote ID rule um, becomes finalized. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Heath or Dan, any thoughts about where this technology is going to, and especially from a their land management perspective, some issues or um, things that you see coming that you're going to have to deal with? Yeah, I, I think uh, drones are, are going to be the wave of the future. There, there's no way around it. I, I foresee a lot of, of capability inside the drone, but I think what we're going to have to be very conscious of on a social level is, is privacy. And uh, like most folks that live in Alaska, we enjoy the privacy and we enjoy the, the quiet and the clean air. Um, so drone usage is something that we're going to have to consider, which is all going to come down to communication. I mean, as long as we create an avenue of communication, allowing people to do the things that they want to do in their recreational time, but respecting other people's rights to privacy, I think we'll find a happy medium in there somewhere. But uh, again, I really think that... Uh, Drones have proven that they're a quite capable platform and it reduces risk to uh, the, the folks in the air and airplanes. And, you know, as we all know, uh, airplanes are very expensive and the insurance rates on those airplanes have gone up uh, threefold, I think, in the last three to four years. So a lot of folks, uh, including some of the government agencies, are looking more at, uh, at uh, platforms like UASs that can accomplish the same job and, and save money in the long run, because uh, we also have to consider this is taxpayer money. And we want to be good stewards of it and apply that money in ways that uh, is effective, cost effective and safe uh, to the whole environment. So um, I think we've got big things coming in the future. I had a question for you regarding at one point you mentioned a wilderness areas, different land designations. And in uh, the Chugach National Forest, there's the Nelewan Wilderness Study Area. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but do you have any can you shed light on drone use over the wilderness study area? Because it's, it's most of the western Prince William Sound where people from Anchorage go and recreate. Um, any information on that? Um, I don't have any specific um, information on that, but just any congressionally designated wilderness area, we just ask that the drones don't be uh, flown over that area um, for you know the solitude and the quiet of, of the area that's being studied and, and the folks in it. So. Uh, if people could obviously contact the forest if they're unfamiliar where those places are and uh, just get a good map and a grid uh, to be aware of it, we would we would just appreciate those being avoided altogether. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the wilderness study is not congressionally designated wilderness. It's a it's, it was part of um, the Alaska Lands Act, um, and so it's supposed to be managed as wilderness. Though the Forest Service has a management plan for it. So it's a little gray zone. So we'll try to get more information on that area because it's a very popular to go and have that on our web, on the Outdoor Explorer website. Uh, Dan, do you want to talk on it where your, your crystal ball drones, what your crystal ball <laughs> says about the future of drones? <laughs> well, like these guys said, the uh, drones are definitely going to get more popular. I'm sure we're going to see more and more people wanting to use them. Uh, around state parks and everywhere else outdoors. And so there'll no doubt be some growing pains as we figure out what 
the right balance is of allowing that with uh, not uh, interfering with other people's enjoyment or other activities. So we'll uh, no doubt hear about that a bit. Um, but I think it'll be exciting. I think there's some, I see some great video come out of them. I see some great photographs and, and I think there's a lot of great uses for uh, investigating things, whether it's the science of what's going on uh, or the elevation and topography stuff you can accumulate, the safety uses for search and rescue and so on. Uh, so yeah, it'll be exciting and interesting, that's for sure. Thanks. I think the points that made earlier about respecting wildlife, uh, respecting other people, uh, regulations, in my experience, come about because of disrespect. And people get irritated by them. And then the public demands action by land managers. And, and, and in this case, it'd be FAA. And so I think a, a lot of the um, that could be avoided by uh, just showing respect for other people and being aware of the impact that uh, your use of your drone has on other people and wildlife, for instance. Uh, Bill, any last thoughts? Um, I think, yeah, the, um, I'll, I'll send you the link, but Alaska does have the kind of best practices for privacy with drones. They have a, a link to that. Um, which goes a long way. It's just all about communication and respect, really. Um, and no, I, I agree with everybody else. It's it's the way of the future. And it just takes a little bit of communication to head off all these problems before they become larger problems. And generally, once people feel included and respected, they don't resent the drones. Um, it's just when they're left out of the loop, when people get a little cranky, in my experience. Great. Thanks. This has been Paul Tordot. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, we've had Dan Butel, Pete Schaff, and Bill Billmeyer on the show. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening. And to Dan Butel, Heath Schaff, and Bill Billmeyer for joining us. Finally, thanks to our producer, Eric Bork. This is your host, Paul Tordak, and from all the hosts at Outdoor Explorer, respect wildlife and others, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.